Please pray with me. Gracious God, just want to ask you for an extra measure of grace and mercy and strength as I seek to preach your word with the power of the Holy Spirit in your might, not in my own strength. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless everyone who's here with that grace as they listen. And I thank you, Father, for uh, such a faithful flock who loves your word and loves to hear it. But even further than that, Lord, loves you, the God of the word and the God of salvation who deserves all the glory. Thank you for the circumstances of this morning. I know that that is part of your sovereign grace and love towards me and towards all of us. And so we come to your word now, God, asking you to focus our hearts and our minds on what you have to say to us in this precious text in Mark chapter 10. Thank you once again, God, for pouring out your grace and love toward each of us and for this precious time in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, let's turn to Mark chapter 10. We are continuing the sermon which I titled, What Goes Down Must Come Up. This is part two of two. We're in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. And before we get into the actual text, I want to just give some more foundation for that, that thought, that principle of what goes down must come up. And so if you want to jot these down, you can. Psalm 10, verses 16 and 17. It says, The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Psalm 10, 16 and 17. Psalm 138, verse 6. 138, verse 6 says, For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, the humble. The rest of the verse says, But the haughty he knows from afar. How about a couple of Proverbs? Proverbs 18, verse 12 says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. Destruction, uh, being destroyed, right? being brought down. The heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Okay? To be honored is to be lifted up, esteemed, raised up. Proverbs 29, 23, along with that, A man's pride, again, arrogance, upness, will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Some of you are familiar with that wonderful verse in Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, where Hanani, the seer, the prophet, he rebukes King Asa for relying on himself and others rather than on the Lord. And he says in Second Chronicles 16, 9, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Those whose heart is completely his, completely devoted, 
humble, dependent upon God. So a couple of verses I gave you already last week, but just to remind you, James 4.10 in the New Testament, he says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. So the spiritual reality is what goes down must come up. And this is a promise from God. He will exalt you. He will lift you up. He will strongly support. He will cause to ascend. That's what his promise is. And that's what he even desires for those who are humble. So it's a good thing, isn't it? To be lifted up by God. Strongly supported by God. To be raised up by God. It's even a godly desire to want to be exalted by him. And of course, we caveat that, that this is for the glory of his name, right? As Psalm 115 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. So the way up is first the way down. That's the spiritual reality we've been talking about. And so we've seen that Jesus' disciples have it backwards. They sought to be great, to be first, to be prominent, to be exalted, without understanding that first must come suffering. First must come great sacrifice. Throughout our time in Mark, we observe the twelve as self-absorbed, self-centered, even as genuine followers of Christ. They did actually sacrifice much, leaving virtually everything to follow him, but they were, they were new in the faith. So they had a long way to go to fully understand what that meant for their lives. Both now and in the near future, when the Lord is going to be crucified, they didn't comprehend at this point what our sermon theme has been last week and today. That Jesus' suffering and sacrifice for sinners is the greatest act of humble service, leading to the greatest glory. That's what we've been looking at, and we'll complete it today. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. And so I'm going to read the whole passage again today. So if you are able, please stand with me. Mark 10, verses 32 to 45. We covered only verses 32 to 34 last week. We're going to finish it today. And this is the word of God, starting in verse 32, Mark chapter 10. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. 
and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Maybe seated. We started looking at three ways to cultivate this Christ-like humility so that God can be glorified in our lives and our leadership. We covered the first way last week, so I won't go over it again. If you are needing to review or haven't heard that sermon, the first point was to remember the price of Jesus' great suffering. And that was verses 32 to 34. And um, just the, the encouragement and exhortation once again to remember the person of Christ and the work of Christ every day. And so we're actually going to land on that in the end. But let's, um, let's, let's go on to part two or verse two or point two, which is in verses 35 to 40. And it's battle the problem of recurring pride. And we touched on this just a little bit last week. And as we look at James and John in verse 35, the two sons of Zebedee, they come up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So clearly these two brothers were quite fixed on self, right? On man's interests, as Jesus rebuked Peter just a a few chapters back. They couldn't see what Jesus had to undergo, as Peter could not see it, even as he, he reminded them multiple times. They did not have room in their minds or space in their spirits to think on God's interests. They were too caught up in themselves, man's interests, things of this earth. And that's the problem of recurring pride. It's, it's this tendency, tendency to be focused on self. And it was, a, it was a battle for believers then, and it's a battle for us today. We've got to fight battle for humility. So with that, the sons of thunder, James and John, they came up to Jesus. They approached the Lord. And they've got big things planned, right? They want the Lord to do for them whatever we ask of him. So it seems like a misprint, right? Or a typo, or maybe they're just kidding around, right? After what Jesus just told them about his sufferings, okay, we just read in verse 32, 34, right? What they actually meant to say was, teacher, we want to do for you Whatever you ask of us. But no, it's not a typo. It's not a, not a mistake. There's no errors in the Bible. They really said this. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And what's our Lord's response? Verse 36. He says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And even at this most obvious and odious expression of self-centered pride, Jesus doesn't get impatient. He doesn't lose his temper. It reminds us of 1 Corinthians 13, 4, right? Love is what? Patient. 
Love is patient. It's long-suffering. Okay, love is understanding. The rest of the verse says, passage says, not arrogant. Okay, what's the opposite of arrogant? Humility. Okay? 1 Timothy 1.16 is another great verse uh, describing our, our Savior. It says, Paul writing, 1 Timothy 1.16, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, he says foremost of sinners, right? Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. His perfect patience. What a distinguishing characteristic of our Lord. Okay, undying patience. Total patience. Patience to the end. So with all patience, Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you, James and John? They say to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. And Matthew chapter 20 is the parallel passage in Matthew's gospel. And this is Zebedee, so to speak, a mom, James and John's mom. She speaks there and she comes on behalf of the sons. And so um, maybe she did, and uh, that's what Matthew recorded. Well, she did, and that's what Matthew recorded. Um, but in Mark, the boys have come, and perhaps it's after her as well, and they speak to the Lord after the ice was broken. I don't know exactly how that happened, but somehow or another, Mom was involved as well as James and John. And it's the same request. Grant that we may sit. Okay? In, in the Greek, it's, uh, it's, it's in the form of an imperative. Right? It's like, um, give to us these positions, right? Like a command more than a request. He says, one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Matthew says, in your kingdom. So they request these positions of highest authority. These two brothers, okay, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus names them the sons of thunder. And one thing I can say is at least they know and believe that the kingdom's coming, right? Jesus will receive glory, but like the rest of the disciples and like a lot of people back then, their, their concept was horizontal. Okay? It was earthly. It was worldly. Political. Their concern was more self than God, more me than Jesus, more us than others. And that's the problem of pride. And this is a recurring issue that has been with the disciples. Their focus on self, it keeps rearing up its ugly head. Right? We're almost frustrated when we read this because we've already read Mark 1 through 9, right? Especially 8.31 and 9.31. This is the third time. Jesus tells what's going to happen to him and the first thing that comes to their mind is me, self, myself, I. So if we're honest, I would say that the same is true of us. Is it not? This problem of recurring pride. Do we not get tempted to compare ourselves with others or to look down on others or to judge others or to think we're greater than others. I'm shamefully reminded, just as we were um, leaving for a retreat, um, the youth retreat last Sunday, we stopped at the Chipotle locally here and uh, just having a meal on the road. And as we're eating, I was talking with my wife, and I see across the way that uh, a young mother, probably in her 30s, was with her three-year-old daughter right next to her. And they had their finishing up eating, and um, the mom was on her phone virtually the entire time. And beyond that, she had a, a toddler laptop, a pink toddler laptop 
set up next to her, her in her daughter's space. And every time her daughter would kind of go at her arm to, for attention, she'd point her to the to her toddler laptop instead. And so, and you know, I, I have to admit, I was looking, and, and th- for the most part of the time, the the mom was playing games on her phone. And so it was it was um, it was challenging to me. Uh, I was crying a little bit in my heart for just the you know just the way things are these days, and yet. My, my question to myself is I was wondering if um, I could offer a word of grace somehow to this lady, um, this young mother, um, was, is this pride in my heart? Is this, is this judgmental, condemning spirit that's rising up? Or is this humble, loving concern and care uh, for this, this um, young lady who, who I don't know and her daughter? And so there, there was definitely a little bit of, of struggle there. I, I won't tell you the, the rest of the story, but... Do we not look for opportunities to, gl- to claim greater importance than others? Do we not desire that, like greater importance than other people, at least internally? Do we struggle with that? Do we not hide things about ourselves or tell half-truths in order to make ourselves seem better, more godly, more put together than we are? Hey, that would be pride if, if that's what's going on. Do we not get tempted to desire glory for ourselves, to, to make ourselves look good? rather than desiring that the God who saved our souls would look good? So these are really just a a few, a few of the ways that pride can manifest itself in our hearts and lives. And it's helpful to identify those things so that we can battle it. We can cultivate actual humility, Christ-like humility. So in verse 38, Jesus says in response, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized with? Again, the patience and love of the Lord is nothing short of astounding here. Okay, Not only do these two come up to him practically demanding that he grant them what they want, but that they they were seeking the highest seats of honor next to the Lord. And please observe once again that Jesus does not dissuade them from the desire to be great or to attain to even these positions of authority. Uh, To quote C.J. Mahaney in this very helpful book called Humility, he writes, quote, What I find especially fascinating and instructive is that Jesus does not categorically criticize or forbid the desire and ambition to be great. Instead, he clearly redirects that ambition redefines it and purifies it, end quote. And so Jesus is about to teach them yet again this great and needed lesson about humility and true greatness, right? That's where he, he lands in verse 43. It culminates in verse 43 and 44. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Okay, so we'll get there, but back to verse 38. He says, you don't know. Right? You don't know. In short, he's telling them they, they don't yet understand what it will mean to follow him, to be his disciple, what it will take for God's plan to be accomplished. Okay? First, once again, is his own suffering and sacrifice. Okay? The stuff that he's going to need to go through, and which he just explained to them. In addition to that, the sufferings and sacrifices that they, they as his disciples must undergo. So when he says, drink the cup that I drink, the baptism that he mentions, basically he's talking about his suffering, 
his suffering. The cup refers to his sacrificial death. The baptism that I'm to be baptized with, this too is a figure for his death. And listen, he used it before in Luke 12, verse 50. Luke 12, verse 50, he told them previous to this, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Okay, so he's talking about his sacrificial death to come. Kenneth West says it well. As he says about the cup and baptism, it's, um, it's speaking of a person overwhelmed with calamities. Our Lord is referring to the sufferings into which he will be plunged at the cross and which will overwhelm his soul, wringing from his broken heart that desolate cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? End quote. So Jesus is asking, asking them, Are you able to bear this anguish and affliction? So what do they say to him in response? We are able. We are able. What, what overconfidence pride produces in people. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. We, we must battle this recurring problem of pride. It, it makes us dull. It clouds our vision. It overestimates, or in some cases underestimates, our own, our own abilities, our own goodness. Pride makes us think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Okay? Overconfidence in our own ability. It reminds me of that, that story of uh, the, the English teacher, English professor, who thought they could teach the, the author and wordsmith, Mark Twain, okay? um, Samuel Clemens, they could teach him something about the, the English language. And so this English professor goes up to Mark Twain and, and says to him, Did you know that the word sugar is the only word in the English language that is pronounced sh? And he says, Are you sure? So Romans 12.3 says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So Jesus responds. He lets them know in verse 40. Even though they don't quite get it yet, they will. They will undergo suffering for his sake. The cup that I drink, you shall drink. You shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. They, they will follow him in his persecutions. And he's already told them that was coming as well. If you just remember last week's sermon, John 15, John 16, he's been preparing them. And when you look ahead, James, this very son of Zebedee, he was the first of the twelve to be martyred for Christ. Okay, put to death by the sword by King Herod in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And John, he was the last of the twelve to die. Okay, after being exiled to the island of Patmos, some traditions say that he was first thrown into a huge vat of boiling oil. And so the first and the last of the twelve. And there's obviously been many faithful believers and preachers in, throughout church history. For example, on July 6th, 1415, which is a little over 607 years ago, John Huss, Jan Huss, was burned at the stake for his faith and for preaching the gospel. And he prayed, Lord Jesus, 
It is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee to have mercy on my enemies. He was heard reciting the Psalms as the flames engulfed his body. So Jesus goes on to tell James and John, But to sit on my right or on my left, that is not mine to give. Again, looking at the parallel passage, Matthew 20, verse 23, it, it reads, This is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared, been prepared by my Father. So Jesus is submitted to his Father's will. We should take note of that. It's a good example of Jesus as the Son being subject to his Father's will, to the Father's plan. And so there's that submitted attitude, that subjection to the Father's plan, the Father's will that that Jesus as God the Son submits to. And yet we understand that they are equal in essence, equal in nature, equal in, in authority. And so... Something to keep in mind there. And secondly, he says, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Again, by my Father. So these privileged positions of honor, of, of authority, of power, that they're requesting one on the right, one on the left, Jesus is saying it's for those whose character is being prepared for such a responsibility, for such authority, for such, for such weight, Hey, it's part of the reward in heaven, and there's degrees of reward for those who are faithful, those who are humble, those who are just living their lives for, for Christ. So, we must remember the price of Jesus' great suffering if we want to cultivate Christ-like humility. We need to battle the problem of recurring pride. And our last point is this. In verses 41 to 45, we must embrace the principle of true greatness. The principle of true greatness. And principle ends in P-L-E, right? Not P-A-L. We love that. So verse 41, hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant, indignant with James and John. Speaking of recurring pride, um, they're not settled with this. They're not happy with James and John. Uh, that argument, who's the greatest among us, it, it has not been settled they're ending, they're angry. Hey, they're worked up here, hearing this conversation and what's, what, what James and John are requesting. And so, what right do you guys have to ask the Lord for such a thing? You think you're the greatest. Wow. So, this might just be the time for, for Jesus to throw up his hands, right? To, to roll his eyes. But of course he doesn't do that. Hebrews 4.15 he was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. Verse 42, instead of losing his temper, Jesus calls them to himself. What a patient and loving good shepherd he is. He gathers his men, calls them to himself. It's time for more teaching. Right? And as he teaches on humility, we have to see that he is exemplifying what that is. Is he not? It takes a humble attitude, folks, a humble heart, a lowly, meek, others-minded, not weak, okay, gentle, restrained strength, patience, to extend this kind of, this kind of love and long-suffering towards obstinate, stubborn, prideful, selfish people. Okay? And I'm so grateful when 
when I'm prideful and I'm, I'm stubborn or I'm selfish, that, that people extend grace towards me. Okay, that, that is humility. That is humility. That's Christ-like humility. But it's difficult. It's hard. So, Jesus says, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Right? So, he draws a comparison by pointing to unbelieving rulers and leaders. Okay, this could be those in government, those in the business world, those in the work world, wherever. He says that Gentiles, these unbelievers who are in positions of leadership and authority, they lord it over the people who are beneath them. They exercise authority. That's just how they roll. That's the way they operate. Their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. Men who are considered great in the world, powerful, authoritative, respected, they exercise, they practice authority over those underneath. Hey, they, they, they wield their authority around like a, like a baseball bat over the ones that are beneath them somehow. They lord it over. So another way to think about that is this. Okay? They basically force people to do things that they have to do. Right? That's what authority does. That's how using only authority works. It's constant power moves in which eventually don't build people up, but eventually actually does harm to the relationship. And I think about parenting. I'm a father. I think about pastoring. I'm a pastor. Um, For you all, maybe you have some sort of position of authority or leadership. Maybe you're a manager, you're an employer, you're a boss at work, you're a supervisor. Whatever realm it is, family, work, just community, church, an organization, whatever the situation or group might be, it's helpful to think about the contrast between authority and influence. Authority lords it over, like Jesus said, forcing someone to do something because they have to do it. This would be coercion. Coercion compels, it, it forces, it pushes It drives, it demands. But influence, we might think about it like this. It's serving someone to be someone because they want to. Okay, serving someone to be someone because they want to. Okay, that would be influence, that would be inspiration, which impels. Okay, it draws, it pulls, it persuades. And so, once again, folks, I'm not saying there's never any time if you're in a position of authority that you just got to tell people what they need to do, right? But, but Jesus says that's not, that's not the pattern. That's not, that's not a cultivation of, of, of humility, of servanthood. And that's not the way that we want to mark or characterize our leadership and our life. So this passage okay, is, is largely about Influence and leadership. So I could talk a lot about that, but let me just say that this um, influence is a, a necessity. Okay, it's even a, an outworking of Jesus's lordship. If you if you uh, look at or listen to Mark uh, Matthew chapter five, verse thirteen through sixteen. Okay, the Christian life is is to be is to be lived out loud. 
Okay? Which means we're, we're to be influencing people. Mark, uh, Matthew 5, verse 13 to 16. You know the verses, but he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. You get the point? Hey, we're not made to be hidden and have no effect on people. As Christians, we are to be the salt and light of the earth, having an influence. And so he lands on verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we are to live our Christian lives out loud to communicate God's love, God's truth, God's grace at all times to spread his light, to be his light in the world. Psalm 145, verse 4, Psalm 145, verse 7, Psalm 146, verse 2, it just tells about shouting out uh, the the excellencies of God, speaking them forth. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13, Paul writes, We believe, therefore we speak. Why do we speak? So that we can have an influence on people for Christ. I, I read just the other day that the average person, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but according to this person, the average person has an influence in his lifetime on roughly 60,000 to 80,000 people. And you're kind of shaking your head, no way, right? That's, that's too many. But when you consider just even short interactions that we have with people, just in line at the, at the grocery store, getting our hair cut at the barbershop, just, um, just acquaintances that we have, people who may be listening to this right now, just all, all of those interactions combined, family, friends, strangers, whatever, Okay, but anyway, my point is influence as a necessity in that it's the importance of making every moment count and making every moment count for Christ and the gospel for the eternal souls of people. And once again, this morning is a is a reminder of that. And so we want to make a difference for Christ. We want to love people and give them good news and don't ever give up. Keep sharing Christ. Keep preaching good news. Keep, keep, keep telling them this. Even if it seems like they're, they're not listening, keep sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost around you. So let me just tell you, influence means, according to Webster's, an emanation of spiritual or moral force. Okay? An emanation of spiritual or moral force. Cambridge says... The power to affect someone's development, actions, or thoughts. And of course, we are talking about eternal life, spiritual, spiritual life. And we're talking about blessing and encouraging and edifying one another. Influence. We have social influencers today, right? Instagram, social media, TikTok, all that stuff. Social influencers who, who affect the way people wear their clothes or where they shop or what they buy. And they become famous and rich for it. You know what Dave Duell, a pastor, says? An influencer is the person who follows Jesus best. And that's, a, that's a real influencer. And every one of us, if we're Christians, we can do that. If we're humble. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory. Rockefeller said, regarding influence, quote, I will pay more for the ability to deal and influence people than any other ability under the sun, end quote. 
It's a man with a lot of power, a lot of money. Uh, he, he, knew, he knew what influence, what the value of influence. So, dear FBC family, maybe especially men, okay, husbands, fathers, um, we've been saved to, to get over ourselves. You know, what do I mean by that? To just, to just be humble and to be open to, to relationships, open to taking the risk to have an influence on people with our words, our actions, our dreams, our encouragement, our prayers, our energy, everything. We, we want to embrace our roles as men, as, as leaders, and as women, which opens our, our lives to, to this whole new realm of relationships. So there's a balance there, I would say, in leadership okay, between the use of authority and the use of influence. And it's good to consider Christ. How does, how does Jesus lead and influence? Right? What is he like? What, what does Jesus do okay, in order to lift us up? Well, I'll remind you of Matthew 11, verse 29. Because he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Okay, that's that's literally the, the only adjectives that, that we read in the Gospels that Jesus used to describe himself. Gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Okay, so as we read, um, Pastor Bill read Philippians 2, 1 through 11. That was purposeful because it reminds us again the, the depths uh, uh, from, from the heights from which Jesus came, glory in heaven from all eternity past, to enter into earth into humanity and to go down and down and down and become by becoming obedient humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and so what does he do as he sacrifices himself and gives his life and sheds his blood for us he goes the lowest that you can imagine what does he do he comes and he lifts up wretched vile sinners he lifts us up with him and this is the amazing, amazing truth of the gospel. And so he says to us in verse 43 again, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Right? So servants, folks, have no authority per se. But, but we can have a lot of influence. Right? Humble servant leaders are capable of coming underneath and lifting up. Okay? There's, there's more burden there. There's more weight there. It's, it's, it's harder to, to, to influence than to just, just wield your authority. But we would be right and righteous to follow Christ in the way that he's shown us. And so he says, it is not this way among you. You're, you're not to be like the Gentiles. Not like the unbelieving world and their perception of things and their concept of greatness. Okay, humility is required. This is service. This is sacrifice. Considering others as more important than yourselves. Not considering only your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. He says, you as my followers and disciples are not to be like the world of unbelievers. How they lead, how they operate, how they are. But the definition and path to true greatness is serving others the glory of God, serving others for the glory of God. So the disciples, they desire greatness, 
which, again, Jesus never says categorically is wrong, but he redefines what real greatness is. Okay? He doesn't tell them, hey, don't, don't, be, don't not desire to be great, don't desire to be first. He says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. So it's a, it's a good truth for us to consider. What is that principle of true greatness? And what is it to be a hero? Pastor Kevin DeYoung says, being a hero is quite simple. Sacrifice self to serve others. Sacrifice self to serve others. That's, that's a Christian hero. And so the gut question is, how are we living these days? Are we living for ourselves or are we considering others more important than ourselves? And how does that affect our prioritization of time, of energy, how much we work or don't work, how much we serve in the church, how much we reach the lost, how much we're, we're with one another? All of those things, all of those things are impacted. A life of humble service is what God has called us to. It's laboring, working, serving, sacrificing, ministering to others with humility. Serving others for the glory of God. Steve Lawson says, The world measures greatness by how many people serve you. Jesus measures greatness by how many people you serve. So as we... Begin to close here. Pastor Richard Wurmbrandt, Wurmbrandt, who was imprisoned for 14 years in Romania for his faith, he later founded Voice of the Martyrs. He tells the story in his book, Tortured for Christ. Quote, one of the really great heroes of the faith was Pastor Milan Haimovici. The prisons were overcrowded and the guards did not know Know, know them by name, but they called out for those who had been sentenced to get 25 lashes with a whip for having broken some prison rule. Innumerable times, Pastor Milan went to get the beating in the place of someone else. By this, he won the respect of other prisoners, not only for himself, but also for Christ, whom he represented. End quote. So as we look at the final verse here of our passage, which we know well, Jesus says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus brings it home, back to himself. This is where he started, right? Verses 32 to 34. I won't read it again. But this is where he began the discussion as he's preparing the disciples for what's going to happen. And he says, for even the Son of Man, God incarnate, God in the flesh, even he did not come to be served. And he's demonstrated that with his life's testimony. Like, what's the last three years looked like for him? What have the disciples been learning? What have they been seeing? Preaching, teaching, healing, feeding, ministering, casting out demons, serving others. The king comes down to serve and to preach good news. Hey, the, the almighty Lord Jesus, he's the servant exemplar. And ultimately, he came to give his life a ransom for sinners, a ransom. And that word might seem a little foreign to us, okay, but to the twelve it was clear, it was familiar in the Jewish Greco-Roman world. Basically it was the price paid to liberate a slave, a prisoner of war, 
or a condemned criminal. And that's what a ransom is. That's how they understood it. So it represents the payment of a price required for deliverance from various forms of bondage or slavery or condemnation. And this was common in New Testament times. So the people who are being ransomed here, is, are they associated with respectability? Okay, slaves, imprisoned enemies, condemned criminals? Okay, no, there's no, there's no air of respectability with, with those people, those groups. But, but the point is that's, that, that's who the twelve were. That's who the crowds were. That's who we are. And, and in the sense of, of, of being slaves to sin, being in bondage to our sin and self. And so this is what made Jesus' rescue mission necessary. Right? We, we understand that we were completely unable to free ourselves from this. Just like the Israelites could not rescue themselves from Pharaoh's mighty, oppressive, slavish hand. We were totally unable to make ourselves alive, just as four days dead Lazarus was totally unable to raise himself from the dead. And this is the case with all who are lost out there today, or maybe even some in here this morning. And this is something that weighs on my heart every single day. Uh, Just on Friday, I think, we were in the Walmart as a family shopping for something. And, you know, I was telling my kids afterwards, because sometimes... Sometimes dad does just stuff or says stuff uh, in public just to be funny for my kids, just to embarrass them. And I'll say something uh, in front of other people, strangers, and um, it'll be funny. But I, I told them afterwards, you know, just what's on my heart uh, every time I, I, I'm interacting with people is their soul condition, is the salvation of their souls. And um, it's, not to, it's not to be made light of. So they're sinners, just like I was once, just like we were all once. We thought we were okay before God. We thought we were somehow good enough okay, and somehow free to, to think that we can live how we want and how we live is, is good enough. But to quote a theologian named Dustin Benj, he says, quote, Unbelievers recognize their sin as their freedom. Believers recognize their sin as their bondage. Jesus Christ he changes everything, end quote. So pride, selfish ambition, vainglory, overconfidence in our own goodness, we could not free ourselves from that miserable, sorry state. And we were slaves to it, slaves to our own sin. And so we needed someone to pay the price for us, to rescue us, to deliver us. An earlier theologian, James Edwards, who we all know, Listen, he said, quote, he suffered, Jesus suffered that we might be delivered. His soul was exceedingly sorrowful to take away the sting of sorrow. He was oppressed and afflicted that we might be supported. He was overwhelmed in the darkness of death that we might have the light of life, end quote. James and John and the twelve, besides Judas, they would be ransomed by King Jesus and his death on the cross for them. They would be forgiven of all their sins, including self-glory, self-centered pride. And they would be transformed from that self-absorbed, self-promoting, prideful men that they were 
into humble, lowly servants who would live to serve others and to proclaim the gospel for the glory of God. They would eventually go from head knowledge theology, I want my feet washed, to heart knowledge theology, I wash others' feet. That humility is true greatness. So I hope this passage has been helpful. We took two Sundays and we could spend a lot more time in this, but our theme has been, once again, Jesus' suffering and sacrifice for sinners is the greatest act of humble service that leads to the greatest glory. What goes down must come up. And these ways that we're reminded and we're learning to cultivate Christ-like humility, it's because we want God to be glorified in our lives, in our leadership, and we want to have that influence on people. So let's, uh, let's pray. Dear God, thank you for giving us this word once again. Uh, I pray, Lord, that it has been to the blessing and profit of our souls. Um, just each of us who are here listening and those on the live stream, uh, but also, God, that it would turn us into a, a church that's truly humble, that's following in the humble servanthood of Christ, and that we are seeking to cultivate humility like him, that, that we would bring glory to you as we live day to day, as we lead in our different areas of, of leadership. God, all of this would, would ultimately cause you to be the one who receives the credit and praise and honor. Thank you so much, God, for including us in your plan and your purposes. And what better thing is there to do but to live this life so that Christ would be exalted and the gospel would go out. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.